Mm-mm. Yes, indeed. Now is the time in this week of Thanksgiving for us to think about healing, my friends. Welcome, everybody, to this week's edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, here on your grassroots community radio station. We are Forward Radio. WFMP LP Louisville broadcasting at 106.5 FM from high atop the historic Hayburn building. I'm here in our studios and also live streaming at forwardradio.org. Please go there, become a part of the, this station. We can't do it without you. We don't want to do it without you. This is radio for the people, by the people, where listeners can get behind the microphone and make media that matters with us. If you've got an issue you're passionate about, if you've got a community you want to highlight, even if it's just a one-time thing, a guest on somebody's show, or maybe you want a weekly program like me, all you got to do is go to forradio.org, click Participate, and pitch us a show. We also want you to pitch us your holiday dollars this season. It is the season of giving, and we hope Ford Radio will be on your giving radar this season. We rely entirely on listener sponsors to keep us on air. And the way we can do that is by keeping our expenses to nearly nothing. It's only $20 a day to keep this great community treasure broadcasting 24-7, thanks to all of the volunteer power. So, Hey, chip in a few bucks and help but keep us on the air today at forwardradio.org. Well, what we're going to do here on Sustainability Now is take you back to November 11th. That was when the University of Louisville held the 2020 Anne Braden Memorial Lecture featuring Loretta Ross on the topic of calling in the calling out culture. It's all about healing, my friends. I think this is such an important topic for our times and such important work for us to be doing now. So I really want you to hear the words of Dr. Ross. She's a visiting associate professor at Smith College in the Program for the Study of Women and Gender. She teaches courses on white supremacy, reproductive justice, and calling in practices, spent more than 45 years committed to anti-racist and feminist activism, including founding the National Center for Human Rights Education. Her career goes way back to a rich career in the 70s at the D.C. Rape Crisis Center and the National Organization of Women, National Black Women's Health Project. And what she does today is train educators and social justice advocates nationwide to conduct empathetic, forthright conversations about confronting injustice. So uh, let us turn our attention to Dr. Ross's words here on Sustainability Now. With no further ado, taking you back to November 11th and the University of Louisville's Anne Braden Memorial Lecture here on Forward Radio. It's a joy to be able to reconnect with the Louisville community, particularly from Atlanta, because right now we're in the center of great social change taking place, particularly with the way black women showed up to help elect President uh, elect Biden and how we're continuing to do the work so that we can help gain control of the Senate so that we can actually get an agenda through that's dedicated to human rights, peace and justice, something that President Obama was thwarted in because Mitch McConnell from Kentucky which I hope, who I wish you had gotten rid of, is still trying to keep any Democratic president from actually achieving any goals while they continue to deconstruct democracy in our country. And so it's very exciting to be in Atlanta right now. And I think it's something prophetic that I'm also talking to people in Kentucky and say that really, if you build the ground game that we've got, you can also turn your state loop. 
My name is Loretta Ross. My brand is Dread Feminist. In many ways, I'm an accidental feminist, but first let me talk about my history with Ann Braden. The National Anti-Klan Network was founded in 1979 by Reverend C.T. Vivian, who passed this year, the same day John Lewis passed, and Ann Braden, of course, who unfortunately died in 2006. And in 1990, I was hired at the National Anti-Klan Network, which had renamed itself the Center for Democratic Renewal. So I had a chance and the joy to work closely with Ann, with Reverend C.T. Miriam, and even with Ben Chavis, who went on to become the president of the NAACP. And so all of these influences on my life and my activism shaped who I am today. As a matter of fact, I need to call in Reverend Vivian and Ann, because when we were doing this monitoring of hate groups across the country in the early 1990s, Reverend Vivian came to the staff one day and simply said, if you ask people to give up hate, then you have to be there for them when they do. And I have to honestly say that was not a message I wanted to hear because I was very comfortable hating people in the Klan and the Nazis and the militia movement because they hated me. And I felt that that was only fair. But when Reverend Vivian told us that, and he was seconded by people like Ann and Ben Chavis and Reverend Mac Jones and all the leaders of CDR that too numerous to mention, he really started a chain of thinking in my brain about how we really cannot use the master's tools, as Audre Lorde says, to build a movement for human rights. In other words, we can't violate people's human rights in the process of obtaining human rights. And so that led me to work with Danny Levitas and Leonard Zeskin to participate in deprogramming people who've been in the hate movement. And I learned not only a lot about people who joined hate movements and I had to take their suffering seriously that led them into that path, but I learned a lot about myself that I had to deepen my capacity for forgiveness, for love, for self-love that made it possible for me to even offer forgiveness and love to others. And so Reverend Vivian is why I started on this path that I'm gonna talk about tonight called Calling In the Calling Out Culture. I love the fact that y'all also started with a poem by Audre Lorde. I was lucky enough to know Audre. I met her a couple of times and I, I was really blessed because she gave me my very first check when I wanted to go to Africa in, in 1984. And she just, she believed in me. She believed in black feminism. And she was one of those people whose shoulders we all stand on. And she also wrote this phrase called a burst of light that inescapable knowledge that's deep in the bone of my physical limitation. And I'm certainly physically and mentally limited, but I consider this calling in message that I'm trying to offer that inescapable knowledge that I now have, because this recent election has confirmed some of my worst fears that this country is tipping towards outright fascism and the, the civil war never really ended. We're just seeing different manifestations of it play out as we debate whether we're going to be a land of equality and freedom or whether we're going to be a land of oppression and repression as we have this soft coup taking place in real life. And I think we all have to recognize the magnitude of the challenge that is facing us and calling each other in instead of calling each other out, I think is vital 
for us to help heal the planet by healing our relationships with each other. We need to heal with our families. We need to heal with our friends. We need to heal even with strangers and even some of those Trump supporters, which is a hard lesson to hear, I'm sure. But like Reverend Vivian said, I had to learn to see the Klan as human beings and we're going to have to learn to see some of the Trump supporters as human beings. I'm not saying all of them, because some of them just want to exterminate us, and they are not the ones that I'm talking about. But there are those who, through their pain, they've been led to listen to a charlatan and a con man. And we just have to keep in mind, when we didn't know what we know, and offer that grace, and I'm going to be talking about grace later on. I've also mentioned that I do this work because I'm part of an emerging U.S.-based human rights movement. And this is not something recent. The first time the phrase human rights was used by an activist in the United States was in 1858, when Frederick Douglass proclaimed that the lynching of a black man in New York City was a human rights violation. And while this isn't a presentation on human rights, I believe that we need calling in practices so that me, as a member of the women's rights wing of the human rights movement, learns to work with the indigenous rights movement, the economic justice, the trans justice, the environmental justice, disability rights, on and on movement. But I want you to understand that when we decide that we're going to share a human rights analysis and ideology, then we're going to have to learn techniques to work with people who don't precisely think like us because I might privilege women's rights and I need to work with someone who privileges economic justice and someone else who privileges trans rights and identity rights. And we don't need to be calling each other out simply because we're not clones of each other are sharing the same ideology perfectly. But if we all believe in human rights, then we're going to have to do our work in a way that doesn't violate people's human rights. And that's where learning calling in techniques count. So I probably shouldn't even have to define what is calling out because we're really, really good at criticizing other people. But basically, for those who say, well, what is this new term? Because I hadn't heard of it until young people started telling me about it about five years ago because they were much more involved in social media than I am, that it's about criticizing the way other people do their social justice work. But I find that as I've observed it, these people who are so hyped on being critical of each other's practices usually don't practice what we used to do in the 70s and 80s, the practice of self-criticism, so that we could make sure that our laundry was clean before we started talking about someone else's dirty linen. And that is largely missing from the call-out culture right now. It's almost like a woke competition. And unfortunately, the people on the right have weaponized the call-out culture as if they're the victims of it, but we're not going to let them hijack our own burst-of-light knowledge about how we need to work together because when the right uses the whole framework of calling out, they're really trying to suppress us, suppress us in very dangerous ways like attacking liberal education, deconstructing democracy. I could go on. This ain't that speech. My course that I teach at Smith College is called White Supremacy in the Age of Trump. So it keeps bleeding over into every talk that I have because of the urgency of the moment. I also find that we're teaching a lot of young people radical information and radical knowledge 
but we're not giving them the radical humility in order to use this knowledge responsibly. And so I see a lot of times people weaponize a phrase that they just learned recently and then sneer at people who don't know what they know. And as I say, it's called part of the woke competition. And with this radical knowledge goes a radical responsibility. And I hope we can understand the concept of radical love, which I'll talk about more later. And so, of course, we want to banish people because they're not woke enough. And I see misuses of the call-out culture where people want to boost their ego or virtue signal in the community, boost their standing. And we spend entirely too much time seeking political purity uh, in our opinions and we shame and we bully people. And I have to ask the question, how is that different from the very same prison industrial complex that we're already criticizing? because they use shaming, they use bullying, they use excommunication, they use basically incarceration, and we're using these same tactics. And so it becomes a public performance for visibility. And we end up using rigid binaries like good, bad, black, white, cis, trans, straight, gay, immigrant, citizen. And we see these things as natural and not socially constructed and defined and maintained. And a lot of time call-outs create interruptions that are very disruptive. Now, I'm an activist who comes from the 70s, and I wasn't active in the 60s, but I was in the early 70s. And at the time, the FBI ran a program called COINTELPRO, a counterintelligence program, where they penetrated, infiltrated, and monitored all organizations on the left, whether it was the American Indian Movement, the Black Panther Movement, the Women's Rights Movement, uh, the anti-war movement. All of these movements were monitored and disrupted by the FBI. Sometimes they just use gossip and character assassination. Sometimes they actually ended up harming and imprisoning a number of people. So what I think people don't realize is that if you're sufficiently disruptive in a social justice setting where we're trying to fight oppression and you end up being totally disruptive and not collaborative in these settings because you think you know something or you're smarter or you're more woke than everybody else, people will not see you possibly as interrogating the process, instead some of us who are more skeptical might start asking the question whether or not you are here to intentionally disrupt us. And so do not perceive calling out as the self-righteous political activism that is characterized on the internet because some of us see disruption with a much more ominous eye than just naivete. And I just need to say that. Of course, all kinds of calling out is necessary. We have to challenge mansplaining, whitesplaining, blacksplaining. I mean, we really have to challenge oppression. So calling in is not a pass to oppression but it's choosing another way to deal with it. A lot of calling out is preemptive. Let me get them before they get me. And sometimes it challenges the love and attention given to others as if we're in an attention competition. And often it transforms one story into something different that may or may not be true. And this creates a very toxic atmosphere in our social justice human rights work because it does replicate the carceral system of punishment it creates a discouraging atmosphere for people. Why would anybody want to come to a movement that makes them feel worse than before they joined the movement? We have to fill people with joy in doing this righteous work, not fear and walking around on eggshells for fear that they'll say the wrong things and get harshly criticized for it. And so unfortunately, calling out frightens a lot of people into not speaking up to tell their truth. And then we gaslight them when they tell their truth 
if their truth doesn't fit a narrative that we support or that affirms us, which is kind of a waste of time and very non-strategic. I think it drives people away from the movement and in a way it disguises privilege while it weaponizes language because it is a privilege to even know this language that we often use. I think one of the more damaging parts of it though is that it makes accountability different because why would anybody own up to or admit that they've made a mistake if the reaction to that admission is a severe calling out and exiling a criticizing, I mean, an attack on their humanity by people who make their own mistakes. And so maybe it's preemptive because if I call you out, maybe you won't know that I am capable of making mistakes too. And it does devalue people's lived experiences, isolates people. And I think possibly the most damaging thing is that it makes our movement and particularly new people in our movement cynical and feel hopeless, that there's nothing they can do. Obviously, calling out is not a new practice. I began my activism in 1970, and so I was lucky enough to do it in Washington, D.C., where I met this woman named Joe Freeman, who now calls herself Joreen. But she wrote this article in 1976 called Trashing, the Dark Side of Sisterhood. And she wrote this long before we had the term calling out. Trashing is a particularly vicious form of character assassination, and it amounts to psychological rape. It's manipulative, dishonest, and excessive. It's occasionally disguised by the rhetoric of honest conflict or covering up that any disapproval exists at all. But it's not done to expose disagreements or resolve differences. It's done to disparage and destroy. And so it ends up that trashing is done behind people's back. It can be done privately or in a group situation. It could be through ostracism or just open denunciation. And the trasher may give you false reports of what horrible things others think of you. Oh, I don't think this, that others have said this about you. And they can tell your friends false stories of what you think of them. And it really creates a situation where everything you say gets interpreted in the most negative light. Often, Like many abusers, they project their behaviors onto you. And of course, we're led by a malignant narcissist who does that quite well by projecting his faults onto everyone else. And when they project these unrealistic expectations on others, then you can become a legitimate target for anger. Legitimate, as they see it anyway. And they deny your perception of reality. They pretend you don't exist or that you don't matter. And she's talking about how the overstatement of harm is used to justify the cruelty through exaggeration of harm. That then justifies retaliatory abuse. And when you indulge in dehumanizing someone else, it doesn't feel like abuse because the people who are doing it often feel like they're punching up, attacking people who should be held accountable. Yet we have to admit that calling out or canceling rarely leads to accountability. And she goes on to say, this attack is accomplished by making you feel that your very existence is inimical to the movement and that nothing can change this short of ceasing to exist. These feelings are reinforced when you're isolated from your friends as they become convinced that their association with you is similarly inimical to the movement and to themselves. Any support of you will taint them. Eventually, all your colleagues join in a chorus of condemnation, which cannot be silenced, and you are reduced to a mere parody 
of your previous self. Nowadays, we'd call that Twitter jail, where 104 characters can change your life forever. It's a form of incarceration, not by the state, but by your former friends who join a crusade against you. I hope this does not sound familiar to you, but unfortunately, it is so pervasive. I think we all have either participated in a call-out culture or been the target of it, or both. And just breaking in to remind listeners that you're tuned in to Sustainability Now here on Forward Radio, and we are listening back to the 2020 Anne Braden Memorial Lecture from November 11th at the University of Louisville, featuring Loretta Ross, author of the new book, Calling In the Calling Out Culture. Such an important lecture about healing in these divisive times. So we'll take you back now to the rest of the lecture here on Forward Radio. In doing research for my book that I've written on calling in the calling out culture, I ran across this wonderful trans writer called Natalie Wynn. And Natalie writes a really strong analysis of the seven steps of calling and calling out culture and the cancel culture. And in it, she talks about, first of all, there's a presumption of guilt instead of a presumption of innocence. And no justice is really possible because the rush to judgment allows no fair assessment of facts. And it encourages scandals to grow. People get titillated by the scandals. And in a way, they sadistically enjoy each other's downfalls. The second stage is abstraction. Not actually providing any details that's going to affect the bad narrative or change or challenge the bad narrative that's going around about a person. And so when no details are provided, then you can't verify any facts, can you? And they use innuendo instead of declarative facts that can be challenged. And they'll throw words around like, you know, so that listeners assign their own meanings to these words, kind of like toxic and manipulative and harmful. And this allows a quick slide into talking about people's behavior you move from talking about their behaviors into now talking about their characters or their morality. And unfortunately, the targets of such abstract accusations are damned if they do and they, they're damned if they don't respond. Because leaving the accusation hanging makes people speculate much worse about what happened than if they actually knew the truth of what the person is being accused of. And it's also used to invalidate claims of identity and shared interests with the critics. When I was exploring Natalie's work, she astonished me by how many subcultures and excuses for dividing each other exist in the trans community. I mean, they had words for who's had surgery, who hasn't had surgery, who's out, who's not. I mean, it was just really deep. I couldn't even keep up with the ways that a very endangered community that is leading statistics and hate crimes tends to spend a whole lot of time calling each other out as if they can't focus collectively on the existential threat that they're actually experiencing. The third step is essentialism. When you move from critiquing the bad behaviors to calling people poisonous, harmful, dangerous, manipulative, this is a character assassination, which then gets inflated and escalated. And this completes the shift from challenging ideas to making accusations about people's authenticity, like they're faking their identity, they're faking their consciousness, they really don't know what they're talking about. They're just doing this to get money or attention. They don't earn any approval or support that they received now or in the past. And I really don't have time to talk about biological essentialism as practiced by the white supremacy movement. But really, it is a form of essentialism that those on the left who should know better 
do. I think the thing that most aggravates me, though, is the pseudo-moralism or intellectualism, the pseudo-intellectualism, because it lacks moral or intellectual rigor. It's a lack of sincerity. It's really hypocrisy in many ways in the cause of being self-righteous. They actually replicate what they're then critiquing what they're calling out. I call it the politics of denunciation. I had a personal experience with this. I won't try to get into it too much, but one time the ADL called me when I was working at the Center for Democratic Renewal, asking me to denounce some other Black people because they read them as being anti-Semitic. I actually do think the Black people they were calling out were associated with Farrakhan and they were anti-Semitic. But as I told this person on call from the ADL, that we didn't even denounce the Klan, keeping Reverend Vivian message in my mind. And I, as a Black woman, was not going around the country denouncing other Black people. That wasn't my mission. And this caller from the ADL basically tried to call me out and threaten me by saying, well, if you don't denounce them, well, you risk being called anti-Semitic yourself. And I just beat him back. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm not your Negro, inadvertently quoting James Baldwin. But I said, uh, I am one of the leading black female experts on anti-Semitism in America. And if you're going to accuse me of anti-Semitism, uh, you better bring a big gun. Because that was just so rude of them to think that I was going to be their beck and call girl because we all worked on the same side. And then I questioned whether we were all on the same side when the tools of denunciation was the choice he was making as he made a false equivalence between black anti-Semites and the fascist anti-Semites I thought we were both working against. But moving right along, I see a lot of people use a lot of pseudo-moralism, and they also try to leverage into these conversations somebody else's pain as their moral cloak. Like every time I have a conversation with a largely white group around white supremacy, almost inevitably someone will pull up, well, what about the, and you can fill in the blank. And they're using these other people, other identities, often of people not present, as a cloak to disguise their discomfort with being accountable for white supremacy. So I really do have a problem with this pseudo-moralism and intellectualism. It also creates a cult of unforgivability. No matter how sincere the policy is made, it's always going to be seen as insincere. It demands that people apologize quickly, thoroughly, and completely according to whatever subjective needs of the person denouncing the harm. But at the same time, no matter how well they do it and how quickly they do it, they will still be read as being fakes. And what this actually produces is an increase in insincere policies offered to insincere critics because all apologies are seen as manipulative attempts to continue the harm and ignore the hurt. If you stay silent, however, don't apologize, then you're accused of fleeing the accountability process altogether because no benefit of the doubt is offered. And particularly problematic is the weaponizing of a marginalized status claiming that because a person is X, they have the right to appoint themselves as judges of another person's growth or lack thereof. And then there's an effect infectiousness about the call-out culture. Uh, I call it the, the political contamination spiral, guilt by association, because if you associate in any way with someone being called out, as Natalie analyzes, if you're even in the same conversation with someone who's already been canceled, you risk deep being canceled or deplatformed in this guilt by association. And it's like person A had a political conversation with the person B and the person C now disassociate 
from BNA because of guilt by association. I'm writing a book on the call-out culture, and I've got over 400 footnotes and references in my book, and I fully expect that I will be called out because somebody's going to disagree with something that somebody I use as a site in my book has said. I've already experienced this briefly because I co-signed a letter in Harper's Magazine criticizing the call-out culture, and because other signatories on that letter, people had problems with them, including J.K. Rollins, you know, the writer of Harry Potter. Then I got to criticize for criticizing the call-out culture with no sense of irony. People didn't understand what they were doing. And they claimed that we who signed the letter were providing convenient cover for rich people who didn't want to be held accountable for their word. I mean, really, people do some homework, do more research and less me-search before you accuse people of things that when you don't even know anything about them. Anyway, moving right along. And of course, call-out culture uses these false dualism, false binaries of gay, straight, evil, good, and out, woke, unwoke. I think one of the things that drives the call-out culture is something I call toxic perfectionism, where You know, it actually alienates people, of course, with the pursuit of political purity or political correctness because we want to judge people whose beliefs differ from ours. And again, that cloaking yourself in somebody else's pain by being their advocate is really part of the savior complex. And instead of helping people find their own voices and perspectives, you want to represent them or save them. And of course, the prison industrial complex is replicated and it makes people really afraid, really fearful, because they believe that they'll be thrown under the bus if they say the wrong thing. And this whole down with the cause phrase like we used in the 70s is really just the oppression Olympics, being competitive with your wokeness. And it really eliminates the ability to listen to people with other viewpoints. And it's sometimes caused by us doing too much online engagement. Doom scrolling is called in these toxic communities. And really, you end up sabotaging your own happiness because you're just a cauldron of anger and you're holding grudges with, I guess, a whole lot of sometimes even strangers because you've imagined that they've harmed you choosing to be different than you are. And I think it's a choice when you choose to make the world crueler than it needs to be through toxic perfectionism. And again, there's a performative part to the outrage. And it's sad because the problem with toxic perfectionism perfectionism is that you have no choice but to look down on yourself because you know you're not perfect. And so that's where a whole lot of self-doubt comes in. That lack of self-forgiveness comes in. And it's really very harmful. And many people spend their time, especially online, canceling with the best of them, screaming about how awful white people are, how awful cis men are, how awful conservatives are, how awful liberals are, how awful communists, I mean, just on and on and on, how awful turfs are moving right along. And it, it really reveals an in-group insecurity. And all I can do is hope they'll get to the point where they look at themselves and not stand what they've become because they've lost the joy in life and especially have lost their sense of humor quite frequently. And maybe... It is possible, and I know I'm going to get in trouble saying this, it is possible to see a joke as funny, even if it is sexist or racist. Everything that is sexist or racist when you're swimming in a sea of sexism and racism will not kill you. So we've got to be a lot more pragmatic and a lot more honest with our wokeness and our values. I find a lot of people struggle with their identities and they feel justified 
in visiting hurt on other people because they hurt themselves. But people should be tired of walking around looking for a fight. I mean, that sounds like it's a very exhausting way to be in the world. And, you know, that that emotional edge of being always watchful, waiting to be hurt, really, really has to be one of the things I hope people consciously seek to resist. So I'm asking us to rethink calling out by avoiding the us versus them mentality that you need to start by focusing on yourself and your motives. Prioritize your strategy. If your strategy is not to disrupt groups and blow them up, but to create unity, maybe calling out isn't your best strategy to achieve that goal and really pay attention to your outcome. I was actually at one experience like in 1992 where I was on the mountaintop in rural Tennessee because a group of women whose husbands were in the Klan had invited me up there to do an anti-racist training for them. And I was more than happy to go up there and do the training. And since it was 1992, I was a bit shocked when they kept calling me the nice little colored girl and they asked me if I was sing a Negro spiritual for them. Now y'all hear the raspiness of my voice. You never want me to sing anything. And just because I look like Bernice Reagan doesn't mean I've got her voice. And it took me a minute to process what they were saying as the nice little colored girl who was going to sing a spiritual for them. And then I had to really assess why I was on that mountaintop to try to bring them into the 20th century with the appropriate language to refer to black people or to help them deal with the fact that their husbands and children were caught up in the Klan. And so I set aside my anger and my hurt so that I could fulfill my goal of doing this anti-racist training for women who were risking domestic violence or worse by even having me talk to them. Now, I have to honestly say they invited me to stay on that mountaintop overnight, and I had enough self preservation to get the hell off that mountaintop because I I didn't know if they could keep the secret that I had been there long enough for me to be safe. But still, you have to focus on what your motives are, your strategy is, so that you can choose whether you want to do a calling out or a calling in strategy and what outcomes you want. And it is important to build collaborations and stop using shame and ousting as punishment because you should value the relationships that we're building rather than see them as transactional. And we've understood the importance of not having every relationship as transactional with the example, the bad example set by President Trump. So let me pivot and talk about what is calling in. Calling in is really a calling out done with love. So you're still paying attention to the injury, to the harm, but instead of putting on somebody on full blast, you're saying, you know, that what you said didn't land well with me. Do you mind if we have coffee to go talk about it? Or, you know, we don't use that word anymore. Sometimes we say it this way. Oh, I'm sorry that you misgendered me. Sometimes I misgender myself. Would you like to talk about how we can learn better ways of describing each other and using the proper gender pronoun? It's not about ignoring the harm because a lot of people falsely assume that calling in is about ignoring the harm. No, it's choosing not to blow up somebody's life because they made a mistake. And this requires investing in each other, knowing that people are not disposable. And that if we are sufficiently healed ourselves, we can invest in another person's growth. Now, calling in is not for everybody. I have to honestly say there's different roles people play in calling in. If you are still in the midst of your hurt, 
from the wounds of white supremacy or transphobia or, or patriarchy or whatever, then you're not in a place to really want to invest in somebody else's growth. And that's okay because it's not an obligatory practice. It's a choice you make. It's okay to say, talk to the hand and walk away. But I think it's a different thing when you put somebody on blast simply because you're in a lot of pain because you're not really assessing whether the harm was intentional or not. It's also not an identity-based practice. It's an opportunity to decide to self-reflect, to see what kind of human being you want to be walking through the world, whether you're going to like let the trauma that someone else has imposed upon you permanently define who you are in the world, or will you recapture your self-definition, your self-empowerment, and your power to actually forgive yourself apologize and repair for mistakes you make and making intentional steps to change your behavior. You always have to remember the broader context because if someone accidentally steps on your foot, it's different than if somebody slams their foot on your foot on purpose. And so putting somebody on blast because they accidentally stepped on your foot is kind of what the kids do when they're trying to get respect and make sure that nobody disses them and all of that. But Emotional maturity should provide you with the capacity to do a more accurate threat assessment and not just assume that because something hurt, it was intentional. And by the way, the worst hurt you'll feel probably will come from your family and your friends and your lovers anyway. And you can't just dispose of them as easily as you can a stranger. And that's why it's important to stay calm and ask for clarification. Sometimes just saying, I beg your pardon to somebody makes them rewind what they said in their own head and say, wow, that didn't come out right. Let me further explain myself. And that requires active, loving, listening practices that are taught in many different settings, in therapeutic settings, in relationship building settings, all kinds of places you can learn to turn off the chatter in your own brain and your overreaction to other people's words so that you can pay careful attention to theirs. And you should be grateful that you have this opportunity to learn. And I think it's important for us who want to build a human rights movement to have difficult conversations in a culture of accountability. But we have to use practices of radical love. In other words, the love and the trust in humanity that we all want to be good people. We all want to do the right thing, even if we're pretty inept at doing it. I uh, find that since I work at a predominantly white institution like Smith College, I find that I am surrounded by a bunch of white people who want to do the right thing and most don't know how to do it right. And that doesn't mean that they're evil people, they're damaged people or anything, but white supremacy intentionally keeps white people from understanding how to deconstruct it. So stop being surprised that that's the norm and let's work on it, like I said. I think we need these human rights-based conversations where we establish inclusion and not exclusion as the norm. One of the things that frustrates me about the, the bad turn that identity politics has taken, identity politics was a concept offered to the universe by the Combahee River Collective in 1977. And it was supposed to be used as a statement where you defined who you are. And then the second step, once you got through that self-definition was to define who you would work with, who you needed to stand in solidarity with. But when I talk about the misuse of identity politics, I see too many people using their identities basically to define who everybody else ain't, as opposed to figuring out who they need to work with 
because they're using it to justify not doing the hard work of working with anybody who's different from them, which is rather sad because it means that you will never gain power by only working with people who exactly resemble you. But moving right along, I think we have to stop seeing people through our trauma-informed lenses. I am a rape and incest survivor, but it would be very bad for me to see all men as my rapists just because I don't get along with a lot of guys. I mean, hell, we can argue over football or tennis or, or pinochle, which I play competitively. That doesn't mean that I should feel threatened as if they were the same types of guys who violated me when I was a child. But if you don't get help for your trauma, then you end up with permanently attached trauma-informed lenses. So somebody just speaking to you harshly or just debating with you over an issue triggers you back into those earlier feelings of helplessness, powerlessness, and harm. I find that people invest a lot of money into processes and not outcomes, but we can also spend also spend a lot of time in privileging outcomes over processes. For example, I see a lot of people justify doing horrible things to each other claiming that the ends justify the mean. But I also see a lot of people in social justice practices spending so much time on mindfulness processes that they never achieve anything but self-congratulatory feeling good. <laughs> and so we're going to have to work on balance, I think, in order to gain the power we need to end white supremacist oppression. But we do not have to recreate oppressive spaces and replicate what we're trying to overthrow. And we Really, like Tony K. Bambara says, we've got to make the revolution fun. We've got to make it a fun, informative place for people to come who want to join us as part of the human rights movement. When people are called in or out, they're going to feel almost like the same reaction, whether you call them in or you're calling them out, because they're going to feel defensive. They're going to get that sinking feeling in their stomach. They don't feel like they're really being seen as the way that they really are. And they may even feel torn apart by whether it's a calling in or a calling out. They'll feel shut down, that someone's mobbing them or at least summoning a mob to mob them. Feeling angry and isolated, hurt and unheard is common. Feeling that People are dismissing your perspectives through the form of gaslighting or denying your perspective, feeling a little numb, like, oh my God, I just said that, or they just said that about me. What did I do? And people usually retreat inward when that happens. And whatever past patterns you've developed mostly as a child for dealing with conflict, those will be the patterns that you often exhibit when someone is either calling you in with love or calling you out with anger because we haven't learned to manage those past patterns in a more productive or constructive way. They'll deflect to other issues, attack other people's character or personality. That's the ad hominem attack. They'll counterattack, preemptively attack sometimes. And if you do it in a way, if you call people in in a way that doesn't feel like you respect them, they'll double down on, on their intransigence. They're not going to just immediately leap to concluding that you're right. And that's one of the reasons we have so much trouble talking to Trump supporters, but that's a whole other thought. A lot of times false equivalences are offered like, well, oh, the, let me just use America. Whenever we try to criticize the United States human rights record, the first thing our country will say, well, what about China? What about Cuba? That what about a thing? And, you know, of course we say, I, I don't live in China or Cuba. I'm talking about my responsibilities as a patriot in this country, but they don't want to hear that. A lot of times there's tears, particularly 
one of the things that's particularly irksome, I think, to a lot of Black women is white women's tears, but I'm also annoyed with Black women who don't realize the legitimacy of an emotional reaction that is just a reaction. You don't have to take responsibility for other people feeling in pain in that way, but you also can't be dismissive of it either. And then people sabotage and can feel outraged. And so I don't want it to sound like, okay, this is a bad thing. It's so dystopian. Why should I try it? But I think we can actively work to pull ourselves out of this moral pit that we've dug for ourselves as a human rights movement. I really do believe that we can do this. And because I spent a lot of time paying attention to the writings of my elders whose shoulders I'm standing on. I really think that we can be better at this. When I was director of the D.C. Rape Crisis Center in the 1970s, we had a program called Prisoners Against Rape, where we actually taught feminist theory to Black men who were incarcerated for raping and murdering Black women. And if we could do that kind of radical love work in the 1970s, I'm still interrogating why 50 years later we can't do it. We can't still do that. That if people have done some horrible things, and most of the times the people we're calling in ain't done nothing nearly as atrocious, but we act like they have. So I'm, again, saying we can be better. And again, this is about how you need to recognize that Time will slow down when you're shocked. We, we may get gaslighted. Some call-outs are justified, by the way. I like vertical upward call-outs where somebody who's unapproachable or unreachable like President Trump is called out or Mitch McConnell or what have you because they're not going to listen to anything but a call-out and there's a question of whether they listen then. But at the same time, I think most call-outs that we use in the human rights movement are horizontal against each other. And so we need to recognize that there's a time when call-outs are appropriate, well, I'm not condemning all call-outs, but I am condemning the misuse of them because how and when they occur matters. And we have to provide an opportunity for self-growth and reflection because why call somebody out if you're not going to give them a chance to figure out what they did wrong and grow and reflect on it when you're using a culture of unforgivability. And we need to understand that effective apologies require taking responsibility for what you did, offering to remedy what harm you caused, and changing behavior. And as I said before, your discernment and threat assessments are very important. It's very hard to be honest, particularly when you want to focus on the difference between intent and impact, but you need to stop and remember how it feels if when you're called out before you call somebody else out. I'm going to close, because we're running out of time, to talk about the power of forgiveness. Mr. Singleton, who I'm quoting here, mother, who was Sharonda Coleman Singleton, who was murdered in the Charleston massacre by Dylan Roof five years ago. And in an interview, Mr. Singleton talked about this quote, the narrative of forgiveness is submitting, and it means that you're weak, or people would think that. But I've realized that forgiving is so much tougher than holding a grudge. It takes a lot more courage to forgive than it does to say, I'm going to be upset about whatever forever. And so I want to analyze the power of forgiveness, how you turn extreme harm, and I'm talking about extreme harm into grace, which of course raises the question, well, if you're talking about less than extreme harm, why can't you work on your forgiveness muscle? I think extreme harm moves way beyond racial reconciliation. White people always want Black people to quick 
basically forgive every harm they do as if we're not in the middle of an unending civil war. And this rush to forgiveness judgmentalism really denies people the right to be angry, to grieve, to process their harm. And in many ways, it's used to minimize their injury because it says, well, you really weren't harmed if forgiveness is so hard for you. And then, of course, on the other hand, black people say, well, we offer forgiveness too quickly. And so we should still hold a grudge and be angry. And either way, it re- it ends up de-victimizing the victims as if they did not suffer that grievous harm. And, of course, in most attempts to establish truth and reconciliation, like a TRC, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I've often felt that the, the crucial step of accountability is missing. It's not just enough to find out the truth of what happened to your child or to you, but how are people going to be held accountable for it? And that's where I think we need to really investigate and invest in things like restorative and transformative justice as evolving practices beyond the prison industrial complex. But you can't really get to any justice or reparation of the harm if you're waiting for the person who harmed you to make an apology or anything. And so Mr. Singleton talks about forgiveness as actually an act of radical love, and he offers it as a victim of extreme harm as a statement of his dignity. He wasn't about forsaking accountability, but he refused to let Dylan Roof permanently define who he was. And so Mr. Singleton feels that it's about keeping their own power to bestow grace upon someone else. And I think it is a testament to his courage and humanity, and it's a strength-based approach to conflict and harm reduction because it values the humanity of all the people concerned. And so if you want to practice forgiveness as a practice, you have to realize that it's something you do for yourself, it's not for others. You need to let go of emotional baggage. You know, you really sometimes even question the assumption that something bad happened because sometimes people will say words that they didn't mean anything bad by them, and sometimes they do. You have to be able to do that kind of threat assessment. And you can forgive people without agreeing with them or condemning them. And it starts with understanding your capacity for handling other people's mistakes and understanding when is that most tested in you. And I think you really need to examine again also how well holding grudges works for you and how much you're weaponizing your status and your identity as a victim and survivor in the circles in which you're doing a lot of calling out. And when our values don't align with our behaviors, what does that say about us? How can people see themselves as interiorly good people while they practice bad behaviors? is not only a question we need to ask on the right, but we need to ask that question on the left as well and understand what it means to, to take to forgive, to be an ally. And there's no absolute right or wrong in most situations, even if they appear unforgivable. And that was how Loretta Ross concluded her lecture on November 11th at the University of Louisville's Ann Braden Memorial Lecture on Calling In, the Calling Out Culture, Dr. Ross, visiting associate professor at Smith College and author of that forthcoming book. Well, it's about time for us to turn to our community action calendar, so stay tuned, my friends. Get your pencils sharpened and your calendars out and get ready to take action for sustainability here on your community radio station. Stay tuned, my friends. Set me free And we're rolling on the river Child, she's an easy giver, yeah And we're diving in the lake Good Lord, she's never too late, oh yeah And we're swimming in the sea, I said 
down by the waterside. Take our time down by the waterside. Got no worries and no hurries down by the waterside. And with the sweet sounds of Appalachian, and many thanks to them for giving us permission to use their great local music in the podcasts of our local programs here on Forward Radio. You can find them all at forwardradio.org, and you can learn more about them at appalatin.com. You're tuned in to Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, and it's time for our community action calendar. Yes, even on the week of Thanksgiving, there are ways besides those difficult conversations over the Thanksgiving Zoom for you to get engaged in making sustainability a reality now. Uh, coming up on Tuesday, the 24th at 6.15, there'll be a screening, free online screening and discussion about the new documentary, I Am Greta, uh, and an 8 p.m. webinar with the Interfaith Power and Light youth leaders to follow. You can join IPL for this exciting free opportunity to view the just-released film about Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg. I am Greta, and hop on a post-film webinar to hear IPL youth leaders from around the nation tell us their amazing stories of continued activism. I am Greta is the story of the teenage climate activist told through compelling, never-before-seen footage in an intimate documentary from Swedish director Nathan Grossman. Starting with her one-person school strike for climate action outside the Swedish parliament, Grossman follows Greta, a shy student with Asperger's, in her rise to prominence and her galvanizing global impact as she sparks school strikes around the world. The film culminates with her extraordinary wind-powered voyage across the Atlantic to speak at the UN Climate Action Summit in New York City. Afterward, you'll get inspired by up-and-coming Interfaith Power and Light youth leaders as they tell their stories about how they got activated and what motivates and inspires them. You'll hear about their work, their vision, and how they're making it happen, and they'll offer a closing litany of the songs, poems, and artwork that helps keep them pumped up for the work for climate justice. Join us to get fired up to join the new era of climate action. You can find the link to register at facebook.com slash interfaith power and light all spelled out. And that's Tuesday, the 24th, starting at 615 with the screening and the 8 p.m. webinar with the Interfaith Power and Light Youth Leaders. And then you can enjoy Thanksgiving and after it, come on back on Black Friday for the soft opening of the Black Market on November 27th from noon to 9 p.m. A new grocery store to tackle the food apartheid plaguing West Louisville. It's going to be opening a black owned business at 2313 West Market Street. Masks will be required. There'll be fresh fruit, organic vegetables, and pre-orders are now live at blackmarketky.org. But you don't need to pre-order. You can just come on by the soft opening on Black Friday from noon to 9 at 2313 West Market Street. Also, Saturday the 28th, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. is the Louisville Independent Business Alliance Libas Small Business Saturday at Chef Space, 1812 West Muhammad Ali Boulevard. Libas proud to team up with many organizations to support Small Business Saturday on the 28th. Founded in 2010, this day celebrates and supports the small businesses that make communities unique. From family-run corner stores to food trucks to online boutiques, small businesses are 
an important part of our lives and our city. Their success fuels local economies and it is more important now than ever to support them. So get ready for Small Business Saturday coming up this Saturday. And you can stop by the Louisville Community Grocery Booth to stock up on fresh cabbage, sweet potatoes, collards, kale, and pumpkins at Chef Space, 1812 West Muhammad Ali Boulevard on Saturday the 28th from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Full details about the full day's events are at keeplouisvilleweird.com. Also, Saturday is going to be a community-wide cleanup out in the West End. The starting location is at the Louisville Urban League. They're at 16th and Broadway. It's Saturday the 28th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. And if you want to join the Kentucky Alliance Against Racism and Political Repression, they'll be taking up the cleanup effort on 18th Street, starting at Broadway and heading in both north and south directions. So that's this Saturday, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. And it all starts at the Louisville Urban League. And lastly, I want to let listeners know that applications are now being accepted for the Louisville Sustainability Council's 2020 microgrant program. The Sustainability Council, through its Do Something Green program, offers these new microgrants to support innovative entrepreneurial projects and programs that will reduce greenhouse gas emissions and plan for the impact of a warmer future on our most vulnerable citizens. The microgrant program provides grants to local projects with characteristics such as reducing greenhouse gas emissions, strengthening community connections, creating an equitable present and future, promoting environmental education, providing a model for financially sustainable conservation, demonstrating resilience in the face of climate change, leveraging the grant to multiply the impact, and reflecting the vision and mission of the Louisville Sustainability Council. Recipients will receive between $250 and $2,500 towards their project and will have access to Louisville Sustainability Sustainability Council events, programs, mentors, and the opportunity to partner their work with LSC initiatives. A maximum of $5,000 will be awarded during this grant cycle. Anyone in the Louisville metro area may apply, including individuals, institutions, businesses, and nonprofits. Students and entrepreneurs are encouraged to apply. The proposed activities must largely take place in the greater Louisville metro area. Projects should have a direct impact on carbon emissions reduction while also considering community equity and sustainability. Projects can be new or existing, but preference is given to projects that are innovative, impactful, and sustainable. And the Louisville Sustainability Council is particularly interested in supporting local projects that have shown early signs of success. Applicants must complete the online application by the upcoming deadline of January 30th. 2021, including a proposed budget and timeline, and notification of awards will be on March 1st. You can apply now and learn more at louisvillesustainabilitycouncil.org slash microgrant. And that's all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. I thank you so much for tuning in. I wish you a warm and wonderful Thanksgiving holiday, as weird as it may be this year. Please do stay safe. Avoid anyone outside of those you live with. Think about doing something fun and virtual this year instead of in person. And please, always wear a mask. Save a life today. Thanks so much, everyone. Tune in again next week. I'll be back in your ears with something new here on Sustainability Now. Be well, everyone. While the meadows are in blue, the birds are making music all the day. 